You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. As someone who spends a lot of time looking at the comments that come in about the show, I'd have to say the most commonly requested topic is asset allocation. Yes. Have you noticed that or? <laughs> yes. And actually, it's a huge focus of mine right now, too, because I've just been doing a little digging around and thinking about things and posting in various places and getting a lot of feedback on my own portfolio. So it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah, I feel like at least half the reason that financial advisors exist is because asset allocation exists, right? Just trying to figure out. And what we're talking about here is, right, where do you put your money, right? Stocks, bonds, what kinds? And uh, there's just so much to it that uh, while many enjoy making it very simplistic and there's good reasons you can think about it simplistically, it's often not the whole picture. And that's definitely the conclusion I've come to after years of looking at this and still feeling like I know about that much relative to what I feel like I would want to know to be a fully formed uh, driver of my financial portfolio. I mean, does that resonate with you? I mean, what's funny is when I first came to the fire movement, I wholly ascribed to JL Collins' simple path to wealth, which is essentially VT, SAX and chill, right? That's, that's kind of the mantra there and just all in on the total stock market. And he does have a wealth preservation portfolio now that I see he's got an M1 pie on M1 finance, uh, which, which is like a 75 percent stock, 25% bond allocation. So that's like a little bit of a revision there, but you know, I love the idea of a simple portfolio and it works really well when you're accumulating, right? What I'm realizing now is I'm I'm nearing the place where you're at, my FI date in a couple of years. That needs a serious um, look, I need to put, apply some nuance to it. Um, you know, it's, it's great for the overall setting the direction, but once you get to trying to figure out a drawdown strategy and where, you know, we need cash, we need some fixed income, we need some long-term, right. you know, each one of these buckets requires a different sort of lens that you look at it with. And I realized I've been really short-sighted in thinking about this. We always say, Hey, you know, we're we're not giving financial advice here. Every circumstance is different. Yes. And that's absolutely true when it comes to asset allocation. There's lots of reasons you might choose one path or another. And none of them is ideal or, you know, perfect in other words. And alternatively, there is a place for kind of every strategy. There's just different risk levels. There's different um, desire to be hands-on or not, right? There's a reason lazy portfolios, these three and four typically fund portfolios that the Bogleheads and others ascribe to are popular because they are hands-off. But if you're somebody who really wants to think about maximizing upside but also really protecting your rear end in a down market, then there is a lot of opportunity to mess around with things a lot more, and there's plenty of merit to that idea. However, a ton of people will watch this, what we're going to talk about here, as I imagine what we're going to say, and say, well, that's not right. And <laughs> totally. that's, well, I including me. opinion. Just, <laughs> just recognize there's a lot of ways to look at this. There's been tremendous amounts of academic study um, and all the armchair enthusiasts as well weighing in on various forums, but there's not one answer is what I would say. What I find interesting here is that you've been at this, 
you know, we've both been investing a similar period of time, but you've been really focused on the asset allocation and working with investment advisors for much longer than I have. I set up this very simple portfolio and put it on autopilot and thought, okay, good enough, kind of brushed my hands and said, okay, there we go. And you and I both, as we start focusing in on this, whether it's to you know, record this episode or if we're just doing research on our own, we both get to this point, I think, where we're like, well, that's confusing or that's right. contradictory information. And who do you trust? What sources, where do you go? I mean, there's plenty of information on Bogleheads, but that's that's got a certain leaning. There's plenty of information on Reddit. That's got a different leaning. And there's plenty of knowledgeable people in, you know, all of these spaces online. Who do you trust? How do you know yeah. what information is good? And I'm going to be honest here. You've been working with financial advisors and I look at your situation as the analog for my own <laughs> retirement situation. And so like, I'm doing a lot of like looking over your shoulder and kind of learning from you. So I, it's been really fascinating to see the kinds of questions that you've started to develop and ask of your financial advisors, because I think they're really instructive to me personally, but I think they're going to be instructive to a wider audience without kind of tipping your hand as to exactly what's in your portfolio. I think the broader lessons here, I hope will be helpful in people applying some nuance to their own situation. I am not someone who's going to sit here and say, well, the only way to do this is to consult with financial advisors. Right. That's not my position at all. Personally, about seven years ago, I decided my portfolio was at a size where I was starting to get concerned about my runway to retirement, which at that time I saw as maybe within 10 to 12 years tops. I was able to get it uh, there sooner, like about seven years, but was just really concerned that I didn't understand the nuances, especially about taxes, right? Thinking about asset location in addition to asset allocation, yeah. drawdown strategy. And I felt like my personal risk tolerance required another set of eyes. And so that's why I started to endeavor on that path. And I think one of the first lessons I learned and then I would share here is that at a high level, strategies around asset allocation are not complicated. There are some very straightforward things you can do to set up a portfolio, and there's lots of little rules of thumb that people use. But one of the reasons that financial advisors can be of benefit or you taking the initiative to learn about some of these other nuances is there's ways to kind of round out the edges yeah. and add some yeah. security, you know, mitigate downside risk while preserving as much of the upside as you can. Um, and many people will take those sort of steps. And that's what, what I would describe has happened in recent years. And that does, in fact, give me a little more confidence that I have a little bit, uh, maybe different guardrails around the portfolio. I mean, as, as you explain this, and I look at your portfolio and the, the number of funds and things in it, I think, okay, this looks like it was intentionally designed to be obsequious, you know, <laughs> in, in just in a way that, it's not something that you could actually manually take over yourself. And I, I don't know if that was intentional on your financial advisor's part, or if it's just part of the kind of, I can twist this dial and I know how to twist this dial and therefore I will. Um, yeah. Because if, as I look at your portfolio as maybe an analog for mine, I'm thinking, oh God, that feels overwhelming. Even though you're saying, okay, simple set of rules. So I'm hopeful yeah. that we can take my simple portfolio and the things that I'm struggling with right now, which are pretty serious, I think, and learn from how your portfolio has been constructed. So how, where does the, the asset allocation begin? 
It depends on your stage along the path, right? Okay. In the early days of your investing, I think it can be rather straightforward. And personally, I don't have any problem with somebody who's 20 years old in their first job saying 100% VTSAX. That right. sounds pretty great. Let's start with one, I think one concept right up front, Eric. Why does asset allocation even exist? In an ideal world, you would have a giant bucket of cash equal to or ideally much greater than the total sum of expenses you would have in your lifetime. And then you wouldn't need to think about asset allocation. You would have enough cash to spend forever. Yeah, you have to worry about inflation, so you better have a bunch of extra cash, not just think about today dollars. Right. But otherwise, you could just spend what you had. But that's not reality. And so at a high level, most strategies, when we think about asset allocation, are a mixture of equity, right? The stocks that are going to continue to build value over time and power your portfolio, plus a smaller, generally, although the size of this will increase as you age, portion of fixed income. Those are bonds and other things that will help preserve the value of your assets while stocks are doing their whole volatile thing, right? Because even if they're up 80% of the time, 20% of the time they're down. Right. So you need something to preserve value and be able to have money. So that's why asset allocation is a concept in the first place. Do you agree with that? Or why it's why it's relevant to retirement savings? Yeah, I think it's just helpful to list out what the different assets are. And I think we've just basically okay. given three general categories, right? And there's probably, I think if I look at your portfolio, maybe a fourth one to add to it, which would be alternatives, yeah, which might be alternatives. Yeah. And, and that would consist of what? Alternatives are a big bucket of things. We're talking about real estate, uh, like real estate investment trusts, for example, commodities. Uh, you know, people talk about gold, for example. You can invest in foreign exchange. Uh, you can invest in uh, derivatives, right? There are more complex instruments and, and funds built to take advantage of, you know, specific strategies. And all of those things tend to be lumped together, even though they don't share a lot in common, except that they're not supposed to be very correlated with the returns of stocks or bonds into a bucket called alternatives. Okay. So four general asset classes, cash, equities, fixed income. Is that what we're calling yep. it? Fixed income. Yep. So which most people think of as just bonds, bonds and that is most of what it is and alternatives. So that that's right. These are the things, the sort of building blocks of our portfolio. And if you go and look at a site like Bogleheads where they have this kind of very simple two, three, four fund strategy, right? Um, alternatives aren't even really in that mix often no they they they're not and uh i mean that that just goes back to jack bogle uh the for, uh, the founder of vanguard right. and the creator of the first indexed mutual fund the idea that you know when you try to overcomplicate it or the more you touch things right, the, the, the you're incurring cost you're going to make mistakes just make it simple and yeah. follow the indices and take advantage of all of the movement in the market as opposed to trying to uh, you know, throw darts and win. So when I'm starting to think about my own portfolio and I'm, let's say, using the handbook for, you know, that most fire people start with, which is simple path to wealth. And I say, okay, total stock market, good enough. Why is that maybe a flawed assumption? I, the, I guess my first reaction is it depends upon the point in time in which somebody's making that claim. Sure. So to my earlier statement, if you're just getting started, and you know you're reading about investing and you read the simple path to wealth and say well i should just go 100 percent vtsax that's not necessarily a bad idea it's a very low expense ratio fund it captures the movement of the market as a whole and what could be wrong with that but over time 
you are allowing for there to be the impact of volatility in the market could have tremendous impact on the the sort of size of your portfolio. And as you get closer and closer to expecting to retire, that's a risk that's really not what you want to be bearing. The downside of that idea is that you don't have any protection when you need to be drawing down, when you need to start taking money out of your portfolio, selling stock. Because of course, selling stock when it's up here, that sounds okay. When you sell stock down here, you're selling more shares to get the same dollars out. And that's the problem with being in all equity. When I think of uh, risk, I mean, when, when a lot of people think about risk, and this is maybe my personal lens on it, um, I'm willing to bear really wild and huge swings in an equity market. My portfolio has been 100% equities for as long as I can remember. And when I think of risk, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm definitely, I have a high risk tolerance. But the problem comes in when one of these swings is on a downswing and you can't bear that risk because you actually need to cash out at that low point. And right. so if I think about the kind of operating system that I'm trying to develop for myself, and, and I know you're, you think similarly, is it's one of optionality. And yeah. an all-stock portfolio doesn't give you any other option other than selling stocks. <laughs> and I don't right. know why it took me so long to come to this, but as I'm starting to think about, you know, my drawdown strategy, which is definitely a part of the FI journey, right? As you get closer to your FI date, you need to develop Absolutely. a really strong drawdown strategy that continues for many, many years. And as I start to think about that, one of those low points with no options is a real potential problem. And that, you know, especially with respect to sequence of returns risk, right? cashing out right. at a low point. And, and so that for me, that was the kind of light bulb moment that said, uh Oh, I better fix this, but it's not only, yeah. and, and there are some of these kind of common uh, pieces of wisdom that we hear thrown around because uh, about where to purchase these assets too. you know, it's not just asset allocation. It's, but it's also the location of those assets, right? Whether that's in tax deferred or, you know, a taxable account, or in a Roth account. So like that's right. another layer of complexity here. And when we start to talk about drawdown strategies, you probably need some of these fixed income assets in your taxable account too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think the, the, imp the pressure on you to get that right and to be thoughtful about the things you're doing in that area increases the closer you get to your target uh, you know, retire early date. <laughs> yeah. That's where it really starts to matter because when you're when, or early stage, you know, pe there's a sort of a financial order of operations. You'll hear that concept out there. You know, the money guy show for people who know that has a very clear uh, financial order Love of that. operations. Yeah. And depending upon your income level, your ability to save, there's different kind of orders of the way you should fill up those buckets. But in the early days, People, you know, when you're far away from your retirement date, people aren't thinking about an after-tax brokerage account, right? They're maximizing totally. their yeah. uh, matching uh, retirement funds like 401ks and 403bs. They're going to Roth IRAs, et cetera. But as you proceed, you need to start thinking about, well, hey, if I'm going to retire early, right, people who are probably watching this program – you have to have money you can spend before in the U.S. before you're 59 and a half. And you can access those funds without a hardship, uh, you know, reason or without penalty. Um, of course, there are some strategies to move money from retirement accounts out. That's kind of a more detailed topic. But <laughs> most of us 
need to be planning for a combination of cash and, a, and an after-tax brokerage account to be able to spend down. And so we do have to be thinking about that asset location in addition to the asset uh, allocation. Absolutely. You've worked with these financial advisors for seven years and you, yep. you created an investment policy statement, I know, because you, yep. sh you shared that with me. Um, yep, everyone should have one. When I saw that, again, I felt like, wow, I'm really screwing things up here, man. <laughs> so yet another thing I lack. I appreciated the level of thought that went into it. And it kind of guides the asset allocation decisions, right? Because you're saying, this is my goal. And then you're developing an asset allocation and a drawdown strategy and, you know, a way to uh, meet your goals uh, using your portfolio. And that's generally what we're talking about here. So my portfolio, 100% equities. And some of that is in a total international fund, but most of it is in VTI or VTSAX, which is the Vanguard total stock market fund. I have cash that comes in via the business and that we, we direct sort of weekly buys in, into those funds. In terms of the location between those two, you know, I have probably 60, 40 between my sort of pre-tax accounts. So my retirement accounts, 403B, 457, 401Ks, and traditional IRA accounts. So between my wife and I, I would say we have about 60% of our FI number in that. And then about another 40% of that is in a taxable brokerage account. So, you know, when you get to a certain point, you'll max out all of your pre-tax savings that you can for the year. And you need to start building additional savings into a taxable brokerage account. And um, so I'm at the spot right now where I'm looking at a drawdown period between when I retire, my retired date, I'll be 51. So I have a bridge of eight and a half years um, that I'll need to cover before I can start accessing those retirement accounts. Um, yep. So I'm trying to map out a strategy that says, okay, part of my portfolio definitely needs to be in cash. So I'm just going to say 5% right now. Part of my portfolio needs to be in stocks and probably part of my portfolio needs to be in a fixed income set of assets of which I have none. And so you and I, you know, I want to talk about the percentages that you're working toward in your portfolio, yeah. but my wife and I have just kind of taken our portfolio and put it out there in a couple of places online, general forums, places where, you know, we respect other people's opinions, but also where we know we're going to get some contrarian views to yes. how we're doing it. Um, just to see what other people have said. And the general consensus is you're insane <laughs> for <laughs> wanting to retire in three years with that asset allocation. You, you need to uh, dial it back. And so my wife and I are now in the process of saying, okay, well, we're going to try and make this asset allocation more like a 70-30. Let's just call it that for now. Obviously, we're going to build up some cash reserves too, but 70% uh, stocks, 30% bonds. Let's just call them bonds. Um, and so now we're really trying to figure out how we're going to do that because we have this kind of taxable brokerage account, right? Which has a whole bunch of stock in it. I can't just, you know, convert that stock, those stocks into bond, sell them and, you know, turn them into bonds because that obviously creates a taxable event. And I don't, need my tax rate to be any higher than it is currently. So right. it's a good problem to have, but yeah, why, why push that? But, but, and this is something that anyone who's working with a taxable account is going to face. Um, hundred percent. So I want to get into the details and maybe how we do that later on, but you know, yes. I I'm at a hundred percent stock allocation and I'm working towards something that is, 
in my opinion, way too conservative. Um, but again, something uh, that we'll need to talk about. It's been a negotiation between my wife and I, but um, I have definitely taken the opinion of a, a number of other people and including yours to say, uh, you should probably rethink this strategy a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I think first of all, you know, the best time to do that type of work is yesterday. And the second best time is today to, to steal from uh, one of my favorite uh, podcasters. So there's, it's great that you're doing it. You're doing the right thing. You're, you're, I like that you're gathering input from different sources because as we've discussed, there's so many different viewpoints out there and it just really helps to see not only what people would advocate for, but, but why. Yes. And that rationale often can be the most interesting aspect of it. And, and there's just so many layers to this onion when it gets down to it. Because oh. you know when I, when I describe my portfolio at a very high level, it'll be completely intelligible to anybody, right? <laughs> I have about two-thirds of my uh, assets in, a, in stock funds, right? In the things that, that you've spoken about already, like, like S&P 500, a total international stock fund, et cetera. Makes perfect sense, right? Two-thirds in that. Then you have 30% that will split in half, 15% in bonds and other fixed income, and 15% in alternatives. Okay, so that alternatives bucket might be a little squirrely, but we're already very close to what you're talking about, right? 70-30. And then I keep something like uh, at least 10 months in cash. Uh, so depending upon, and of course, I'm post-RE right now, so I, I right. need to make sure that I have money to fund expenses, fixed income, uh, as well to provide that kind of buffer on the system. And then the stocks need to keep generating income. They need to keep generating value so that this portfolio can last my lifetime. Well, that's so, the thing that scares the heck out of me about changing this allocation. I'm like, well, the stocks are doing amazing right now. And, it, well, and let's talk I, about that. Well, I know we've been on this crazy bull run. M1 Finance has these pies, right? And they have yes. kind of, you know, like Paula Pant has a pie. It's 100% yep. stocks. And I look at that and I look at the graph and I'm like, I want that graph. I don't want the graph that has 40% bonds in it. <laughs> it's just not the graph I want. So why can't I have that other graph? You can have that graph if you're willing to drastically ratchet down your spending when the market is down. That's the problem. Right? In retirement. <laughs> That's what you have to be willing to do. For me, I am trying to solve roughly, right? I don't want to be so precise here for consistent levels of spending. Yeah. I spent a, we, my wife and I spent a lot of time, and we've talked about this in earlier shows, working on our post-fire budget. What do we want to spend every year? And I don't want to have to change that <laughs> because of reasons out of my control, like market dynamics. And and I think more people are like this, and especially when you go on the Bogleheads forum, um, you'll find people more like that. They want a more consistent withdrawal ability. They don't want to have to change because this is not a show about drawdown, but there are lots of different drawdown strategies and some of them vary based upon market performance. Some of them uh, are based on price to earnings ratios. There's all sorts of different mathematical ways to look at drawdown. I prefer something more consistent in terms of drawdown. And so I'm going to be a little more risk averse as a as an outcome. So as long as you can have Paul and Pant strategy, as long as you're willing to ratchet down your spending in a severe downturn. Yeah. And that's the, the argument I've been having with my wife, because what you said is exactly what my wife said. And she's like, well, I don't want to change things just because the market's having a down year. And it, you know, the, the next question becomes though, Jay, how long do I need to like the fixed income yeah. asset portion of your portfolio? Let's say, especially before you reach the point where you can tap in your retirement accounts, 
that has to cover what? Three years of, you know, expenses, four years, yeah. five years. What, what are we talking here? Because that's a significant chunk of money all of a sudden. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the most common numbers I hear range in the three to five years. You know, they say you should probably have one to two years of cash, three to five years of fixed income so that, and by the way, why are we doing that, right? For, for anyone who's not getting it, because if the stock market is down, you don't want to sell stock. You'd rather sell bonds because they're going to be neutral to up most likely. Right. Um, if stocks are way up and you need to generate money, well, you're probably going to sell some stocks, especially if bonds are down. So you need to kind of do some math on that. And, and there are some good write-ups. You know, so one approach that's a little more conservative than mine uh, is uh, – so Fritz from the Man uh, Retirement Manifesto, he's written a three-part series on drawdown strategy. And he gives discrete – buckets of time that uh, that you should be able to cover and i believe he's five to seven if i'm not mistaken on wow. fixed income so it's something that Dang. we can link in the show notes for people to look at it's at least a framework yeah. that you can look at and even adopt and just change the time durations if you think they're too conservative but for me i presently have uh probably more than i have more than five years right now you do total if you yeah, it depends what you consider as an income. As an because aggregate whole, though, like, or is this just in your taxable brokerage account? That's actually that's an excellent point. Uh, my aggregate is more like five to seven years, okay. whereas in my taxable account, uh, it's it's at least several years worth. Okay, I mean plus cash. So th this is a real sticking point for me right now, Jay, because obviously my taxable account, which is what I'm going to be using to fund the first eight and a half years, right? The get, get me started on this path has no fixed income in it. And so right. let's say I'm going to start making a weekly buy of some funds in that taxable brokerage account. What do yeah. I buy? <laughs> right. Obviously so there's this, this idea. <laughs> I'm going to tell you what I'm considering. Okay. So, you, so I can get okay. some feedback here. So in a taxable account, uh, that's tax taxable brokerage account, obviously a typical bond fund, which might be throwing off a lot of dividends, uh, is going to be going right to your marginal, you know, tax rate, right? You're going to be taxed at your, your marginal tax rate, which is not great right now. So I don't really want to put a typical bond fund in there. So I need something that's tax efficient, right? If I'm going to buy it in that taxable brokerage. So a couple of things come to mind. The thing that's floated to the top of the list is municipal bonds, which are tax exempt. So, okay, great. I'll just buy a, you know, municipal bond fund. Well, that's, it's not mm -hmm. that easy. <laughs> it's like short term, intermediate term, long term, you know, there's 80 different flavors of these things. And as I start doing the research on them, and maybe you can tell me how you do it. I mean, none of it looks like a great buy. If mm -hmm. we think interest rates are going to go up, well, suddenly now I'm, I'm losing money here. Yeah. Why wouldn't I just keep it in cash? There's a couple of different things that could be brought to bear. So municipal bonds are a very common example. And sometimes there's even sort of state uh, taxation benefits to certain municipal bond funds, depending if on it's the a, state you live in. Yeah, if it's a state. If, if it's you, a state. If you buy a state fund, like the state of Maine has a Correct. Maine municipal bond Correct. fund and it's terrible. Yeah. The, the Right. And I don't hold any state municipal bonds, but I do have, uh, you know, a U.S. municipal bond fund. And that's probably the biggest chunk of fixed income in my 
um, taxable account. Oh, it is. But then, okay. Yeah, you start to have a role for alternatives that aren't quite bonds, but aren't quite stock. And those can maybe act as a middle ground between true fixed income and equities. Things like uh, a mark, what used to be called a market neutral fund, and now okay. I think it's a relative arbitrage. Uh, uh, Kalamnos has one of those. Uh, you could consider preferred stock. That's something Karsten over at Early Retirement Now has written about uh, as an intermediate, right? They tend to perform. They're, they're not, you know, wholly correlated to other indices you might be tracking, but you can capture some of the upside, um, but, but not have uh, as much downside risk. There's a lot of different things I've seen people do, but for me, me municipal bonds and um, you know a market neutral kind of fund is is one approach. So, are, when you buy this municipal bond, not to get too far in the weeds, is it intermediate term? Like because as yeah. I start, it is okay. And, intermediate. Okay, because as I start reading these things, obviously a long term bond fund has a lot more risk associated with it, potentially higher returns. Short term, I mean, all of these things are you paying when you account for inflation they're they're it's like a net negative <laughs> i just yeah, don't well, see and, why and, i would do yeah. that jay <laughs> well and there's there's lots of other things people consider if, if i don't say this we're going to get 50 comments about it so tips uh treasury inflation protected securities are another area of interest uh my own research suggests that that becomes a perhaps a very valuable approach when you have a much larger position in fixed income, like when you're older. Um, that's not something that I have chosen to invest in myself, but many people, uh, especially on Bogleheads, where maybe the average age is a little older than us, yeah. tend to be a little more popular. That's another option. Uh, you know, Or buying treasuries outright, which I know is something that Fritz yeah. uh, over at Retirement Manifesto does. I got a lot of recommendations for Series EE bonds, Series I, mm -hmm. I bonds. I'm like, yep. what? Yeah, but more with, conservative for sure. With yeah. like a 20 or a 30 year maturity rate? What? Yeah, I'm not interested. Well, I, I think one concept we should get out there, Eric, is there's all there's at least four <laughs> different major categories of risk that get talked about. Yeah. Um, and inflation risk is a big one. And when you sure. start talking longer and longer term, you're dealing with that. Right. Uh, there's without going in, let's not make this a treatise on that topic, but lots of different risks. So when well, you start talking about longer and longer term bonds, you start to have a lot of different questions that come up. So I don't hold, I don't specifically hold any individual long term uh, bonds or bond funds that are that are aimed at that t uh, tenure. Yeah, that I duration. mean, as I started looking into fixed income and bonds, I immediately went to a bond fund because I thought there's no way I am buying individual bonds like this is completely crazy uh so yeah. i'd rather get an aggregate like i was looking at vanguard's total bond market like bnd like the etf BND. Uh, yeah or vbtlx is the mutual fund version of that and i just thought okay that's probably good enough i'm, I'm looking for the good enough <laughs> like i don't have the ability to hire financial advisors sort of long term um and so I'm looking for the good enough. That that seems like something I could probably hold in my retirement accounts. And in order to rebalance into those, I need to do that with, let's say my wife is making, you know, a bi-monthly buy, or if I'm buying it all at the beginning of the year in my 401k account, I have a solo 401k account. I could do that um, yep. to start working on some of that rebalancing. Or actually, I mean, I could, I could sell things in those um, accounts to, you know, 
rebalance essentially uh, without any tax implications there. And because I, I have a solo 401k, I can name the fund that's in there. My wife's fund choices, and this is probably true for a lot of people, you don't get to choose the funds that are in your retirement account. So you're kind of at the mercy of what your you know, HR department has decided is, is a good thing to have in there. And sometimes those have really high expense ratios. They're just not really yes. a good fit. That's kind of the case for my wife's funds. Um, yeah. But as, as we think about risk, when I was saying, why not just hold cash? What I thought you were going to say was because inflation. You're 100% right. Holding cash has no, offers no protection by definition against inflation. You're completely subject to it. Your dollar will be worth less a year from now than it, than it is today. So at least by buying a bond that has some yield, you're not losing out to it or you're losing less to inflation than you are than just holding cash. Is that the rationale for choosing a bond? Yes. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm going to be yeah. honest, when I go and look at, you know, people will say, well, just do the math. Go look at the yield. I I look at the yield. Uh, there's a 30 day SEC yield and there's like a yield at maturity and I'm immediately confused. <laughs> I don't know what number I'm yeah. looking at. What, what am I guaranteed? And what if I sell this thing before maturity? What do I get then? I mean, it's just a really confusing space. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, no wonder why Jason chose to work with financial advisors, because if you have someone who, especially with respect to bonds, has some level of expertise and knows how to choose these things, yeah, that would be worth it to me just to get the thing architected and set up properly. Is that kind of how you looked at it? It is. And and honestly, when I ask my financial advisors questions about bonds tends to be when I feel the most confident because they will admit right away how complex of an area this is. And I'm dealing with, you know, CFAs <laughs> yeah. uh, and CFPs Smart people. who really <laughs> understand this space well. And, and they will say, here, you know, let me try to simplify it for you. And then I'll ask another question. They'll go another layer. And they're just like, and this is why it's very messy. But one of the tips I did get from them, and I think this is a very general, generally applicable thing, is when you're thinking about bond funds, maybe think about the fact that reading these tea leaves is very difficult. And, you know, meaning there are fun. In other words, where the market is going to go. So we are in right? what many call kind of you know, unprecedented times in terms of what bonds have been doing versus what they're doing now versus the overall financial market we're in. And so perhaps a diversity of funds is a reasonable approach to consider, right? Don't just say as much as a lazy fund is attractive, maybe not 100% BND, maybe work with a couple of different um, you know, longer tenured fund managers who have a history of good performance. But how do I know that? Sort of how do I know that, man? It's like, well, the, all the, just the like information's picking. out there. Yeah, The information's out there. I think that would be the answer. The reason you would go to a financial advisor conceivably, and we're talking here about a fiduciary financial yeah. advisor, not one who's making money on commission selling you something, sure. is that conceivably they're incentivized to maximize your assets and not just to preserve them, but to grow them because they get paid more when they do that, right? right. You're talking about assets under management. So they've done the homework. They know what they feel most confident about and what they're investing in. And that's what they're going to advocate for your portfolio. And so I, sitting here, Jason, do not have scads of expertise in why this company's mutual fund uh, around you know, bonds are going to be better than that company's. I have now retrospectively gone and done the homework based on the funds I've been holding and tried to understand, well, well how long has that fund manager been there and how has that fund performed versus other, you know, big basket 
bond funds out there like BND that you've mentioned. Um, and then convince myself that that's worthwhile because we do have to consider something we haven't talked about at all yet, and that is expense ratio. Yeah. How much does it cost to hold this fund? And if it's actively managed as opposed to passively managed, there's no, you know, yes, there's a fund manager, but there's not a lot of movement inside that fund. They're tracking versus an index right. like S&P 500, for example. Um, their expense ratio is going to be lower. So you need to look at the performance when we start thinking about that kind of research net of fees and make sure that it makes sense. Okay. So if I am the layperson, probably most of the people Me. in our fire community, okay, just trying to make sense of this, is a bond fund good enough? Like it, you've done the comparative studies between your finely tuned version here and BND, which is something that I would probably choose. What's the comparison? It's certainly... There's nothing wrong with your bond position. Being <laughs> no, I'm not looking for that. Right? I'm, I want the nuance. I want like, okay, if I'm going to say good enough or if I'm going to invest, you know, 100 hours researching different bond yeah. portfolio managers, like I have to know, is it worth it? Yeah, well, absolutely. And I, I'm, I'll give you one example. It's not going to be on bonds. This could be on equity. <laughs> I was wondering, why do I, why do I have a portion of my international exposure in equities in a very low cost, commonly used Fidelity total international market fund. Uh, and then I have these several other trunks in actively managed funds. Um, and so I went and did the work. And net of fees over a longer period of time, right, doing back testing, right, plugging them into a calculator like Portfolio Visualizer, which is something we'll link in the show notes, um, it outperformed the lowest expense ratio fund net of fees by a decent amount. So not only is it broader exposure by the different sort of segments that I've added in, but it's performing better. Does that mean that just using the low cost Fidelity or Vanguard total market, total international market fund is wrong? Of course not. And if you want a simpler portfolio to manage, who could argue against the idea of holding yeah. a single broad international fund just like you're doing? There's, there's nothing wrong with that. I just find that when I get really deep into the weeds, I start to be more and more uncertain of the thing that I'm buying. And I wonder, yeah. um, it's great that you have this extra help here. Um, when you say net of fees, does that actually include the assets under management fee too? In that specific analysis? No, that no, was just, yeah. well, and uh, although of course, you know, if I stopped working with my financial advisors today, right then those fees are out of the equation. So I think it's best for this analysis to talk about the apples to apples comparison, which is if I hold these three funds yeah. versus this one all encompassing sure. fund, does this outperform or does it not? Right. But do you, what do you think the chances you would land it on those, those, that three fund oh, mix zero on your own? Right. And so I'm just trying to figure out like, is the, is the holding the BND in my pre-tax good enough? And, and you know, it'll work for me. Here's, here's my rationale. When I think of a, an index fund, you know, when something unattractive falls off the index, I don't have to follow yeah. it all the way down to zero and take the, take the big zero. <laughs> you know, I can just, sure. I can ride the index up. We got yeah. some real stinkers in there. Interest rates are rising. We're going to eventually rebalance to a position that's trending in an upward direction. But right now, man, I'm, I got to tell you, if I think about 
someone who's heading into early retirement, I want the engine of my portfolio to be largely composed of stocks. And I was personally thinking it was going to be greater than 70%. Uh, and what you're telling yeah. me is you're under advisement <laughs> that says, and, and also a ton of back testing of your portfolio, yeah. which I want to talk about that says, uh-uh, it's a bad idea. Well, let, let's talk about that because one of the categories of alternatives we haven't talked about yet are REITs or you know real estate investment trusts or other types of real estate tracking funds. And so, you know, you're right that two thirds of my allocation is in equities, you know, stock market index funds. But then I have another healthy chunk of my alternatives that are in a couple of different REIT funds. And so those are meant to be less correlated to stocks but still you know, pushing for return. And many people will say it's like a way to invest in real estate with actually owning brick and mortar. A right. uh, little more complicated than that, but that's, there's validity to that idea. Um, and so REITs, when you add them to my stocks, now it becomes a much bigger part of it. Maybe now I'm 75% uh, combination of stocks and REITs. And so okay. it's still at least 75, 25 now okay. at that point. But you know, REITs are a great example of adding diversity. But uh, here's, diversity in your assets. If you hold VTSAX or VTI, the ETF version of that, you you own four percent. Four percent of that fund is REITs. Mm -hmm. So are you're buying REITs because you want an extra tilt toward real estate? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So that's a conscious Absolutely. decision of of your own making. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> God, it just gets more complex. Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Phi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com.